use the dried morels and I'll, you know, de- rehydrate them. And then I'll take that mushroom stock mm. and, uh, make my gravy with that. But, um, and now, maybe now, a little bit of wild Do you think we stock. can call that mushroom milk? Because they call it almond milk and oat milk and everything else. Could we call that, <laughs> could we call that mushroom milk? Like I almost, you know, maybe we could patent that. Like, Hey, go ahead and start using your mushroom milk after you rehydrate. I mean, it sounds disgusting (laughs) now that I'm constantly talking about it. So maybe we don't use mushroom milk. All right. Welcome back to the from field to plate podcast. I'm here with my good buddy, TJ. And if you haven't followed TJ on social media, you really missing out because I think you started a new oh, what's it called the gobble gobzilla or gobblezilla gobblezilla where it's all about like showing turkeys and stuff like that the logo is awesome I, I want sh- I want a shirt with that on the back um, but TJ and I good buddies we started you know we met what three years ago now turkey, yeah. turkey hunting yeah. in California he's an ex-Californian lucky guy got out of here <laughs> as soon as he could um, and through that, him and I became good buddies, and we've gone turkey hunting. We've done California. We've done Washington. He helped me get on, uh, complete my single-season slam last season, which was awesome. Him and I sat next to each other um, and shot a Washington bird that came up and was just a dick all day long. So <laughs> it was fun to fun to get that done and, and to get some recipes. But before we get started, TJ, I, I'm going to ask every single guest these four questions. So answer them as truthfully as you can. If you don't want to answer them, make up an answer. Uh, I really don't sure. care, but, uh, start <laughs> off because I'm all about food and uh, you know that. So what is the favorite meal you've ever eaten? This can be one that you've cooked one, your mama oh, cooked man. one, that your grandma, but like the meal that you're like, you know, I'm on my deathbed. This is my last meal. Like, what would that be? Man? Yeah. I, I love food, which as you know, I got the gut to prove it. So yeah, right. Um, that, that's a tough question for me. You know, I, I'd say that, uh, there's so much food that I love, but I would, you know what, the one thing that sticks in my mind that we did for Thanksgiving, and this was not a wild Turkey, but we took a whole Turkey and I had seen some, um, uh, recipes and I wanted to try, you know, we went, we actually went to a place in Tacoma for our anniversary dinner and it was an, it's called Asado and it's an amazing, uh, Argentinian food restaurant. So we enjoyed that so much. We actually, my wife had the, the pollo asado, pollo asado, and I wanted to replicate that with a turkey recipe. So I took the turkey and I spatchcocked it and I rubbed it down with the achiote paste and a bunch of other spices, some uh, lime juice, and I put that on the Traeger and smoked it for about, I think about four hours. And that was so amazing. I'm not kidding you. We ate uh, pollo asado, well, uh, pavo asado, pavo is turkey, turkey and Spanish. Spanish. Yep. So we ate pavo asado tacos for the next four days. <laughs> Dude, I remember you, I remember you sending pictures and yeah, I think the, what, what a lot of people know is like, like that anchote paste, it's actually made from a seed. Like a lot of people yeah. think it's like a pepper and stuff like that. Cause you go over there, like when we're hunting turkeys in the Yucatan, you know, to get your world slam. And if you're ever going over there to do that kind of stuff. They use a lot of that anchote paste and, and they mix it with like really bitter oranges or bitter lemons because what that yeah. does, that elevates kind of that really rich, earthy, smoky flavor. But you think it's a pepper. Yeah. It's not. It's actually this little red seed that comes from um, another fruit. So it's kind of cool. But no, I, yeah. I agree. I think that's one of when I left the Yucatan, I bought like four bricks. Um, that this lady was making herself. So it wasn't like the one you oh, get on wow. Amazon with that little, you know, sombrero guy. 
Like this is actually like I have like, in the refrigerator. Right yeah, now. exactly. Which is still <laughs> phenomenal. But like yeah, this, this lady's like sitting there like mashing it, and then she wraps it in plastic wrap. I was like, hopefully I can get this home. So I'm like shoving it in socks, like to try to get it home. But sweet, no, that's that is an awesome meal, and you probably have a recipe for it. So if someone wants it, you can be like, hey, this is an- absolutely. And now you got to try it with Wild Bird if you can get on one this year, because you've been yep. struggling. So yeah, it's been a tough season for sure. All right, so question number two: What is your biggest failure, and what did you learn from it? This is one that I was always asked growing up, and I think it's – we always look at our greatest successes, but I think out of our failures come our greatest successes. So, And, you know, I, I don't really have any great successes in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Raising children to adulthood is probably my greatest Keeping success. But alive. great failures, I, ha- I have a lot of failures, right? Um, you know, I, I, some of them are so bad, I'd say that they <laughs> – just, you know, it's hard to figure out which one is the worst, but I, I would have to say, you know, when I was younger, I was not a good kid. And, uh, I did a lot of things that, you know, I could have gotten a lot of trouble for, but, um, you know, drugs and everything else. And I think that that was one of my biggest failures as a, as a younger person that I learned a lot from as an adult, right. Um, it's helped me a lot through life, having gone through that experience and actually having beaten that experience. So. No, that's awesome. And I know you and I have talked many times on that, um, which I think is recording in progress, which is awesome. So, all right. This one is for fun. My daughter told me I have to ask people this. If you won $10 million tomorrow, what would you spend it on today? Uh, A ranch. I would absolutely buy a ranch. Flat out. Yeah. I think that's what I told her too. She's like, well, no, dad, be creative. I was like a ranch and a tractor. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like I'll I'll add stuff to the ranch. Yeah, I, I think I can easily spend $10 million building the ranch that I wanted, right? Oh, so. Could you imagine like building a walk-in like in a butcher, like I, I the, whatever the house, but like to me building that butcher house with like all stainless steel, a sloping floor with a drain in the middle, like power gotta walk. Be dri- you got to be able to drive through it though, because you want to pull your truck in and unload your game and drive out. Ooh, see, I never thought about it. So damn it. Now I'm going to add that to my freaking list. So it's like, Oh, everyone. Cause it's funny. I go to, I go to so many ranches and I walk in and I look at their butcher house. And I'm like, yeah, you guys, you guys just sold like 12 access deer. You could make for that $50,000, make this amazing. Instead you have this little lean to shed with a, you know, jack yeah. pole to pull it up. I'm like, ah. but again, most people are like, Ooh, send it to the butcher. You and I are like yeah. bloody and gutty till the end. So, yeah. I know a man in uh, Mariposa that owns a, a pretty big ranch. And when they built their dream home on the ranch, they actually have a small outbuilding that's kind of in the drive driveway. It's a big circular driveway, but there's a pullout in it. And you pull up to this building and they basically bird hunt, but you unload your birds there and you can clean them there. But there's also a cigar room in there so you can sit and relax after your hunt. I always thought that was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I did a I did a quail hunt in Texas, and the guy kind of had the same thing. You walked in, and it was like a giant mud room, like if you were in the Midwest, right? Couches, really amazing artwork. He had stations for everyone to put your your um, you know your chaps from bird hunting, your chaps up, your shotguns, your whatever, right. your jackets. Everyone had their own bin, and there was couches with. He had a huge humidor with you know cigars. He had a whole wall full of bourbon whiskey. And that was before you even like left to go into the cleaning area. It was like, Hey, just relax. We just got done hunting. And I'm like, I just get to sit on a couch in the air conditioning and listen to stories that went around that room. I agree. I think having something like that, where it's a, an unwind after the hunt would be dope. Absolutely. All right. Last one. What is an insult you've received that you're the most proud of? 
because I love getting insulted, and I love I'm most of them. I'm like, yes, thank you so much for insulting me. You know, you probably wouldn't think it, but I'm a pretty nice guy as a whole, so I don't get insulted a whole lot. Um, I, it, people call me a nerd all the time because I'm a software engineer, right? But I'm really proud of that. I don't really care. You know, I, where I'm at in my life, I've been doing it for 27 years, and I, I feel like you know it, it was a pretty good career path with me, no matter how bored I get with it these days. But um, you know, I don't mind being called a nerd at all. Yeah, no, mine mine usually come from like social media when people that don't understand hunting or cooking, right? Like, oh, you're a murderer. I'm like, yeah, I'm a murderer. Like, I don't know. I love, like, I love getting yeah. slammed on social media. I think it, yeah. it elevates me to do better. And you and I have had those conversations. It's like, yeah, someone tells me I can't watch me, you know? Right. So, well, those, like I said, those are just kind of fun icebreaker questions to get it going. So let's talk about kind of your love for turkey hunting and how your season's going. I mean, I know you hunt from California to Washington you know, through that whole thing and, and you take out youth, you take out kids. And I think I kind of want to gear this towards your passion, which is turkeys. And I know that people that don't know TJ, um, he did a lot of stuff in California for uh, NWTF. He did a lot of stuff with, I think he did like Ducks Unlimited and that kind of stuff as well um, with Kevin. But like your passion is these birds and their habitat and eating off the land, foraging and being as respectful as you can. I kind of just want you to kind of just dive into that and get, get people excited to know that this Pacific Northwest that, you know, or that, that you're in now, just how you thrive in that, in that environment. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll go back to kind of where it started as a kid. You know, I grew up in central Oregon, Bend, which is totally different town now than it used to be then. But, um, we hunted, my dad was, uh, the kind of guy that, you know, we'd go out and cut firewood and he'd bring a rifle along. So, um, that was a lot of my opportunist hunters. Uh, yeah, from the truck, right? Um, you know, we never shot from the truck, but you know, you see a deer or elk alongside the road and you get out and you shoot them. So that was a lot of my hunting as a kid. I didn't do any bird hunting, um, did some small game hunting, stuff like that, but never was really into the big time hunting, you know. Um, we always had deer, we always had elk, right? But those were basically oper- targets of opportunity. Um, as I got older and I got into software engineering, I really lost touch with the outdoors because I was, you know, dot-com period. I was working 18 hours a day sometimes um, and really focused on getting into my career, had kid. Um, so I kind of got out of fishing and hunting altogether. But then kind of in my mid-30s, I started fishing again pretty heavily on the Sacramento River for stripers mostly. And I got pretty good at it. I caught a lot of big stripers and I, we always had a freezer full of fish salmon, steelhead, stripers, a little bit of sturgeon every now and then. But um, the more I did the fishing, the more I realized that, hey, this is really healing for me being outdoors and not being in front of a computer all day long every day. And I started to become a nicer person. Um, And I attribute that entirely to being outdoors. And I, I remember one day I was sitting in the dentist office and I picked up a magazine and it was Turkey Country Magazine. And I started reading an article about this person's turkey hunt. And I was like, man, that sounds like so much fun. I want to try it. So I went home and I told my wife, I want to try turkey hunting. And she was like, why? And I'm like, it looks like a lot of fun. Plus, you know, we can get our own food. And I love to cook. So it was an opportunity for me to incorporate, you know, my passion of cooking with something new that would be good, clean food. So went out, bought bunch of Walmart camo and, uh, you know, an expensive Mossberg 500, got my hunting uh, safety certification and 
and got my license. And I went out, scouted for like 60 days before the season. And I found turkeys on public wildlife areas. So went out the first, and I'll make a long story short, went out for my first hunt. I got myself a Jake and it seemed super easy. Well, I didn't kill another turkey for like three more years. Isn't <laughs> that always how it is? Oh, this is so simple. Right. And it's like, oh, wait, right. I got lucky. Yep. But, but I fell in love with it. It was such an insane thing to me to be able to sit out there and talk to turkeys and watch their behavior. And, you know, it's just like an elk hunter. You get those elk coming into and you get so excited because you're up close and personal. You can see their natural behaviors. It's just an exciting thing. And you get to see a lot of other things too, right? You're sitting in one position, usually turkey hunting for an extended period of time. And, you know, I've had foxes walk 10 feet in front of me with a rabbit in their mouth. I've had, you know, turkeys, hens feeding in front of me as well. You see so many things. It just, it's, it's not something you'll ever see sitting at home on your couch or, you know, going out to, you know, hang out at a bar or whatever. So I just kind of fell in love with it. And the more I did it, the more I realized that, Hey, this is who I am as a person. And uh, I wanted to share that with other people, you know, as I got better and better at it, I realized, Hey, this is something that I can do that it can help other people learn. But I watched a lot of people struggle with turkey hunting, you know, and when they have kids, I was like, man, I can help these guys learn how to turkey hunt well enough to, you know, teach their kids how to turkey hunt. Right. And uh, that just kind of rolled into, you know, uh, volunteering opportunities with the National Wild Turkey Federation, helping my friends, you know, who have kids get their first turkeys. I just had a lot of fun with it. And I've, I've been in love with it ever since. And I think what the hardest thing, which I get from a lot of people is, they envision turkey hunting what they see on Primos or what they see with Mossy Oak, right. where they're hitting these, you know, hard bottoms in Missouri, Mississippi, Tennessee, where the birds are completely different than our hunting here. And you hear people struggling to hunt turkey in California, Oregon, Washington. They don't realize that we're hunting turkeys in mountains, like mm-hmm. in not like just little mountains, but like 3,000, 4,000 feet elevation climb sometimes to get onto a freaking bird it's not like we're sitting we're not patterning these birds every single day like these birds right really aren't patterning yeah they may go from here to there but i mean i've been out with you where we found tracks that are a week old and they never take that path again because right. it's just so vast and it's and they're always having to try to find food and so for you to say you struggled like for me personally i started hunting turkeys when i was 18 because sort of the same deal as you i was dove hunting and i got because again that's that was that's still my i love dove hunting and i grabbed a a magazine and it had an article in there about turkey hunting and i was like dude i gotta go turkey hunt but i'm like i can't go to missouri i can't go to mississippi i'm 18 years old like i have no idea and then so i found an nwtf chapter which is in san diego and they were having this turkey tune-up and i went to the turkey tune-up and i actually won like one of their raffles they gave around this reservoir that they're, that they give away. And I remember I went in that first Yelp, I let out on my slate and I heard, and I went, I'm done. That's it. Like, this is, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I want to, I want to chase turkeys. And I remember I didn't shoot a turkey until I was 25. Like I hunted hard every single season, but again, I was hunting San Diego mountains and the pressure up there. I mean, opening day, you drive down the road, there's 400 cars on the one stretch of BLM land. And I started realizing like you, the farther you get away from the cars, mm-hmm. the better chance you have. And you know, when you and I hunted, we watched all the cars stop and we went up higher and higher, higher up in the mountains. And we found tons of birds. 
And right. I think that's that's where it comes down. People don't realize when we talk about it struggle to, to turkey hunt, for you and I in California, Oregon, Washington, even these uh, New Mexico guys and some of the uh, Utah guys who are hunting these birds in Montana, it's a struggle, to, even all the way to, like, Wyoming. Like, yeah, I know guys absolutely. who are hunting the Black Hills who are, you know, or that whole ridge, ridge that comes down, and they're struggling because we're hunting these birds in their territory. It's not an open alfalfa field where they can see for miles. And they're like, oh, look, there's a, there's a Jake, and they come running in from 100 You know, it's like, yeah. you know, kind of, kind of tell about that and how you kind of got people – through that and, and kind of how we do it differently. Cause I mean, you do it different than I do it. And I yeah. learned a lot from hunting with you because of your, you know, kind of like your stop and calls along the ways and, and, you know, to locate those birds versus like just going out at nighttime and owl hooting, you know? Yeah. You know, I, I so one of the things I want to bring up is that bird hunting in the mountains, those, those birds have a lot of predators as well. Right. When you got a bird on a farm, they don't have a ton of predators. They do have predators, but it's not, you know, here in the, on the West coast, we have mountain lions and bears and foxes and cougars, you know, or I said mountain lions and cougars, but they're, they, well, yeah, but slew of I, have, I have cougars because I'm in Orange County. There's a whole different, <laughs> whole different type of cougars going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but bob, you know, and, bobcats, raccoons, all that stuff. That's all predators but, to these guys. Yeah. And here we have here in Southwest Washington, golden eagles and bald eagles, right. Which will easily take down turkeys. So there's tons of predatory pressure and, it reflects in their behavior. They're very wary. They use their cover. Like you can have a bird 40 yards from you and you won't ever see him because he will stand behind that cover and work his way around you in a big 40 or 50 yard circle and never come out of there, right? He's waiting for that hen to come to him. So helping people to learn how to hunt that environment, it's been a challenge for me to even hunt it. But what I found is that when I hunted a lot of the highly pressured public lands, more often than not, my opportunities with a hot bird would be ruined by somebody coming in and chasing that bird off, right? And I got tired of that. I was like, I can't hunt like this anymore. So moving up into the mountains, it took me a lot more time to figure out the behavior of the birds and how to get them where do I work. But what I learned was a lot of patience, right? You may sit and work that bird for two or three hours, him gobbling his head off before he finally decides to come into you. Is it do I be quiet? Do I call more? You know, it, it's a crazy mind game that you play with yourself of how do I get this bird to give up and come into me, right? So I've learned a lot of those little things over the years of turkey hunting in the mountains that when I bring people with me, I try to teach them those things. And it's not just uh, how to get that bird to come into you. It's how to find the birds, right? Because there's very specific ecosystems that those birds live within, within those mountains. You can go to three or 4,000 feet and you may never see a turkey because you're not looking for the right uh, ecosystem, right? right? So I tell people, look for things like uh, tall timber next to clear cuts or reprod trees where there's water within a short distance, right? Or, you know, uh, areas that they can forage where they're going to have a lot of forage, but there's still cover for nesting. And so just figuring out some of those things from watching those birds and just learning, being spending so much time around them that you learn what they like. Yeah. I remember so. even when you and I went out last season to, when I got that freaking giant Tom up in uh, El Dorado with you right. is we worked that bird. I mean, we, we hiked down the mountain to this bird and we heard him. He came up the mountain to meet us. And 
for 45 minutes, he was, like you said, he was walking around us at like 50 yards and really, really thick stuff. And we were in the only little 20-yard patch of clearness that we could shoot. Finally, he went over the ridge back away. And I remember I, I used this in Texas. And, used, and you looked at me and said, I'm going to go back like 100 yards. And you like belly crawled up the side of this mountain for 100 yards. And you started calling. And what that did is it brought him up into that open area because all of a sudden he thought his hen was leaving. And so that circle that he worked, he couldn't work anymore. He came right up and poked his head up. And I dropped him at 50 yards. And right. it was, I mean, we worked him for, I think, on the video that I have, it's like an hour and 17 minutes. Right. So we worked that bird in a 20-yard circle, <laughs> you know, for, for an hour and 15 minutes. And I remember you were so far up. I mean, you, you got all the way back up to the truck, I think. And that was yeah. like three, 400 yards the truck was, right? And you're still calling. Yeah. You heard the shot, and all of a sudden you're like, we, we it was so funny because all of a sudden you hear, yeah, like from way up on the mountain. I was like, how the frick far is TJ? You know, you hear this, just, and then you made your way back down. But we were in, I was in Texas um, last month trying to get two buddies of mine on their first birds ever. They live in Texas, they've hunted whitetail their whole life, but they're branching out into, and Turkey was on their top list. So they're like, hey, you want to come out and hunt? They had like this 4,000 acre ranch that they could hunt, and no one's ever hunted turkeys there really, right? Except for like an owner, maybe shoot, shoots them with a bow. Right. And that morning we saw coyotes like crazy. I'm like, it's going to be real hard, guys. The birds are silent. Like they gobbled a little bit on the tree and then it was windy. It was horrible. And so where we were sitting, we kept hearing this gobble behind us. And then he would go over here. He would gobble and we, you know, he'd go in front of us behind us and he would never come out. So I looked, there was two brothers. I said, hey, I'm taking one of you and I'm going this way because I hear another gobble over there. But I'm going to call when we get over there because it's going to bring him out thinking we left. I mean, I'm, th I'm thinking of you the whole time. Like if he thinks I left, he's going to come out and be like, Oh, well, where'd you go? Weren't you right here? And sure enough, we go over to the other side of this field. There's this big, you know, you know, you've ever hunted Texas, just it's not bushes. It's crap, you know, just right. thicker than snot stuff. And we go over there and I go, Hey, let's just sit. And I took the one brother said, let's sit here. I'm going to send out some calls and I'm calling on, on a box call real loud. You hammering. And about three seconds later, boom, and I went, oh, and I go, I mean, I go running through this thick stuff. I'm like, right. And I go over there and one brother's like, ah, and there's a bit, that big old giant Tom is sitting right there. And he said the same thing. As soon as I got over there and called, he poked his head out, looked and came strut, like strutting right into the decoys. And so as soon as right. he got the decoys, he pulled the trigger, but that bird for 45 or actually almost two hours worked around us until I yeah. left and he came out to see where I went and he saw the decoy and came right into that Jake and that. And I, the whole time though, I was like, TJ left. I need to leave. Now someone's still going to sit here because that bird's still, and I think that's the biggest problem is people are like, they get fed up and they leave. Right. Right. That bird's still, if you're hunting doubles, send somebody <laughs> away. You don't need two people sitting there, but that bird's going to come back to that, that spot. Cause he remembers it. They're, they're not dumb birds. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you, uh, here, here's a good technique that I use that you can probably use. And you may have done this before too, but Kevin and I were hunting up in that same spot that same week that you and I killed that bird up there in the mountains. And uh, we had a bird come in and he, we could see him. We were sitting on the side of a hill behind some big stumps and we could see him down below us and he wouldn't come any closer than 80 yards. And we sat there and called to him for about an hour and there was two other Toms, but they kept their distance maybe at about 150, 160 yards. But this bird, he would strut up to about 65 yards and then strut right back the other direction, but he would never come any closer. So 
uh, we kind of felt like he was going to take off pretty quick. So I started scratching in the pine needles really loudly, trying to keep my movement down, but, you know, making it sound like there was turkey hens over there scratching. Man, that bird broke into a run and came to us. <laughs> Kevin started doing it too. And that bird, boom, came right to us. And probably an hour after shoot time or so, we ended up dropping him. But yeah, I learned that, te- I learned that technique from Kevin also when we were hunting that first time with you. And we were up there and we had that tom that was still off. And he starts just throwing leaves. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like throwing leaves. He's making all this noise. He's taking his, or he took um, like his water bottles. And then he, and all of a sudden that Tom comes running up the road. And I'm like, what? Yeah. Because it was a different sound. And I think that's the problem with hunting public land is they get that shy call, you know, like, hey, I've heard that before. Oh, I still don't. uh, It's been an hour. I don't see you. Why are you calling at me still? Why haven't you worked your way down to me? Right. Uh, you, all of a sudden you change that up to, you know, wings flapping or scratching or even doing a, a Jake gobble. And all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, that's different. Yeah. Right. And they come over there. So. Yeah. And that's the thing is you just, you got to spend enough time out there and it changes from area to area, but you, you spend enough time around those birds to kind of learn what they like and what they don't like. Some areas, you know, I tend to be a loud caller. Some areas, those birds hate that the areas that I'm hunting right now here in Southwest Washington these birds do not respond very well to calling at all, but loud calling will completely shut them down. Um, you know, so learning about the birds in your area is really important because you think a turkey is a turkey, but they're not. They all have their own little idi- idiosyncrasies. And you may even have a birds like I have here where they hardly talk at all, but then all of a sudden there's one bird who's, you know, in the mood that day and he's, he's fired up. So just, uh, you know, patience and spending the time to learn about turkeys and not just turkey hunting, learn about turkeys, right? Uh, there's a couple of good books on turkey biology. Um, there's some great videos out there. My Life with a Turkey is an excellent video. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but mm-hmm. it's about a guy who raised a bunch of turkeys from, from the eggs, wild turkeys, and tried to teach them to be wild turkeys. And it was just an amazing learning experience for him, but for me too, watching it, right? It was, a, it was adapted from a book that he wrote. But um, just... You know, if you're really passionate about turkey hunting, you you will naturally be sucked into that kind of stuff. And I, I think for me, um, that's why I've done pretty well with turkey hunting. I, I still tell people, I don't know anything about turkey hunting because I really don't. You know, I've gotten lucky learning some things that have worked for me and I try to pass the, that knowledge on to other people. But there are people who are way better turkey hunters than me. So Oh, and I've, yeah, you, you and I have both hunted with those people. It right. just blows your mind the way it can communicate with turkeys but yeah well let's kind of go to your next big thing that you're about and that's foraging um sure and i think for a lot of people they're scared of foraging and i know for you and i when we're walking in the woods our minds are always thinking of other things than just that bird you know i'm looking for artifacts i'm looking for food i'm looking for biology i'm looking for animal signs you know i was walking with some dudes and they're like why are your eyes always fixed on the ground (laughs) <laughs> and like not up and I go because there's tons of stuff to look at and to see you know and also I'm like oh check out this mushroom check out this so I kind of want you to kind of talk a little bit on that because it's getting into that season like the mushrooms are just now starting to show up um, some of the fennel head you know like some of the stuff that we can forage um, that you and I love to eat that a lot of people on the west coast don't even know about like I know that's a big passion of yours so kind of share a little sure. bit about how you got into foraging and you know, kind of what to look for and what you've seen in the turkey woods. Because again, when we're turkey hunting, this is the best time yeah, for us to collect absolutely. all the other fun stuff. So, 
Yeah. I've always had an interest in foraging. I never really acted on it until I was out turkey hunting one day and I saw these mushrooms and I was like, huh, those look like those morel mushrooms that people are always talking about, right? So I picked them all and I brought them home and I was like, I'm going to get these home. They're going to turn out not to be what I thought. To be false, yeah. (laughs) So um, I, I got them home and I looked them up and I'm like, holy cow, these are morel mushrooms and they're super easy to identify, right? One of the classic signs that you have a true morel is to cut it in half lengthwise and if it's completely hollow from tip to, to the base of the stem you probably got a morel on your hands so ate them all and i was like oh we, we ended up making a gravy a morel gravy to go with the turkey mm. that i killed and it was just like what salt what like sauteed them up sauteed them up like normal button mushrooms that kind of stuff in the gravy yep exactly a little bit of chicken stock normally when i do a morel gravy i will i will use the dried morels and i'll you know, de- rehydrate them. And then I'll take that mushroom stock mm. and uh, make my gravy with that. But um, now, maybe no, a little bit of wild Do you think we stock. can call that mushroom milk? Because they call it almond milk and oat milk and everything else. Could we call that, <laughs> could we call that mushroom milk? Like, I almost, you know, maybe we could patent that. Like, hey, go ahead and start using your mushroom milk after sure you rehydrate. Know. I mean, it sounds disgusting <laughs> now that I'm constantly talking about it. So maybe we don't use mushroom yeah. milk. Um but I'm still going to call it that because yeah. I think it's funny. But yeah, so that was kind of the first foray into foraging totally by accident, right? But then I, I was like, oh, you know, I know about these mushrooms. So I started learning more. And at the time I lived in Placerville and, and where I lived, we had a whole hillside that would pop with certain types of mushrooms. So I would go out every time there were, you know, it was mushroom season. I would go out and kind of do some uh, mostly picture taking and comparing that to, you know, some of the Facebook groups I'd ask for IDs, but also I bought a bunch of mushroom books and I'd start comparing that. And I'd really learn about not so much the scientific aspect of it. Cause I don't really care about that. I don't care about the biology. I mean, I understand a lot about mushroom biology, but the, the fact was, is this is a culinary thing for me. Right. So it was learning how to identify the edible mushrooms. Right. And I just picked it up a little over time and I had friends that were interested in it too. We'd go out foraging together and we'd have a good time and, you know, pick a few mushrooms, but you know, it's been, uh, it's not just mushrooms either, you know, hunting up at 8,000 feet in in the Sierra and finding uh, coyote mint, you know, and incorporating that juniper berries from the same area. So, you know, I'd shoot grouse up there and cook something with the mint and the juniper berries to go with the grouse. So, you know, it kind of, it kind of plays into, a theme where you know try to find something to pair with the the game that you're taking that's you know edible it's you're going to be able to prepare with that dish so yeah and i think that that's where you and i really click is is you like to look at what the animal's eating like i like to look at what the animal's eating and if the animal's eating it then it's going to pair really really good with that meat you know like absolutely i mean i remember we were hunting turkeys in in kentucky and I'm sitting there, I'm like, what is that smell? What is that smell? I'm like, I know that smell. And I look down at my feet, and there's wild onions growing. I'm at nice. all over the place. I mean, turkeys aren't gobbling. I pull out my knife, and I'm starting pulling, you know, just little little pearl-sized wild onions. And the guy that I'm with, who I'm actually trying to help him hunt, he's with a company. He had never hunted. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, dude, if we shoot a turkey, we now have, like, the onion tops, the onion bottoms, like, and then I'm going and I was like, oh, look, there's ramps, right? So I start pull, I start picking ramps and then I'm, we're going over. And I'm like, oh, look, and there's more else. And he's like, I mean, I had the, my backpack, my turkey backpack was <laughs> loaded with stuff before we, and we ended up shooting a turkey later that day. And it was like, 
And I told him we brought that back. And I go, look, and I created this dish around all the ingredients that we had harvested, you know, throughout our entire day. And I looked at him, I said, the reason a lot of us call it harvesting, right? Because I know it's a big, oh, don't call it harvesting, call it killing, is because we view that bird as part of that, you know, when I walk outside, you walk outside, that's our garden. Like, mm-hmm. every, we can we can pull pine needles and we can make tea, which is packed full of vitamin C, which a lot of people don't realize. Yeah. And we can enjoy this as we're up at 8,000 feet and have this pine needles, you know, tea. But you and I look at that as that's our garden. And we're not going to take more from our garden than we need. And so when Absolutely. we're harvesting these turkeys, it's it's we're taking what we need to to feed our families, to eat. We're going to leave the rest. And, you know, hey, yes, have I shot Jake's? 100%. Will I yeah. shoot Jake's again? You got it. 100%. But <laughs> if there's a Tom and a Jake coming in together, I'm going to I'm going to shoot the big I'm going to shoot the bigger bird cuz it's more meat. If a Jake comes in and he's at, like I said, if you if you walk like a man, you talk like a man, you're going to get shot like a man, right? <laughs> and so that's kind of that whole mindset, but I think that's the best part about looking at what you do, what I do is at the end of the day when we come back and we can look at the ingredients. And that bird is another part of the ingredient. The mushrooms, you know, the, the fern heads, the pine yeah. needles, the mint, the whatever we find. We were on a hillside in um, the Applegate Mountains hunting black bear. And again, I'm sitting there with my cousin. I'm like, what is that smell? Like, I know this. And there's a whole hillside of, like, wild cilantro. Oh, nice. Just, I mean, and I pick it up. I'm like, it's coriander. It's, you know, I'm looking at the, I'm, I mean, it is everywhere. And I'm just filling my pockets full of this stuff. Because, again, it's like, I want to eat what's there. I mean, I can go to the grocery store and get, and, you know, we got back and we were, we cooked up venison with this cilantro. We made, like, a cilantro lime. And it was awesome because nice. of the fact that it's just, like, it's just there. So, right. yeah. I don't know. I I could, you and I could talk food and culinary and tell our freaking <laughs> sure. face. And our wife's like, we really don't care. Just cook it for us. <laughs> yeah. I know yeah. your wife's same way. Like, but, what, uh, are we, what are we having for dinner uh, on tonight? that? I think one one of the things that I want to mention is that it's a great way to get people uh, acclimated to the idea of hunting, even if they're in never never hunt, is feeding people wild food, right? My family, my wife's family, they don't hunt and they, they will never hunt, but they love coming here and having me cook wild game meals for them because it's such a new experience for them. They get to see the meat being used. And you know what? They're all very liberal people. And not a single one of them has ever said anything bad about hunting because they understand the way the animal gets used. It's respected and it feeds us, right? And that's, I think, the key thing a lot of people miss is the amount of respect that goes in to killing that animal, right? It's the way you use that animal. Yeah, I make deer burger. There's all kinds of fast food types of recipes that I make that people might you know, consider not as much respect as say, you know, a five course meal or whatever. But um, the fact is, is it's feeding your family. And that's, that's really what it comes down to. So I, I like to take that opportunity. Every year, we used to invite friends over, you know, we'd have a bunch of game left in the freezer, and I'd do a, a five course uh, wild game dinner. And it was simple stuff, right? Because it's a lot of work for a bunch of people, but like striper fish tacos and uh, pheasant confit with duck fat fries and you know, uh, snow goose, uh, barbecued snow goose breast, mm. right. And give people new experiences and people loved it, you know, 
matter of fact, Kevin came over for one of those dinners and I fed him barbecued snow goose breast. He's like, what is this? And I was like, snow goose. He's like, no way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love cooking things that people don't normally eat or hunters who say, mm, I yeah. just don't like it. And then they yeah. eat it and they eat it, eat it, you know, like, like Bobcat. That's one of my big ones um, that I cook for people. And they're like, this is phenomenal. What is this? Like Bobcat. They're like, damn it. Like, now I got to keep my freaking bobcat meat. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you do. Um, javelinas, you know, all those Texas guys, you cook javelina and they're like, ah, we don't eat those. And all of a sudden they're like, all right, well, yeah. I guess we eat them now. And so I think that's, that's huge. Um, and I know yeah. for a lot of people, it's, it's a gateway drug. Um, yeah. Food, absolutely. food is, and if we don't eat, we die. Right. And so yeah. I think for, for you and I, and for a lot of hunters out there, the only way we're going to continue to grow our hunting community because I don't call it a sport, um, but I think our community, right. our culture, our hunting culture is by introducing people into it in a respectful way. And I think food is that most respectful way we can do it. We can, it is, you absolutely. and I can take out new people, adults or kids, and show them the most respectful hunt that there is, but there's really no buy-in to that hunt unless they harvest something, right? Right. But if we have them over to dinner and we tell them a story and we present them with a meal, all of a sudden there's a buy-in there's there, there's a drive there's a want they're like i want to go shoot this turkey because it tasted amazing yeah. like i cooked food for those brothers at turkey camp and it was a, i just came to my head you know i i uh feathered out this turkey breast put down you know cream cheese and homemade bacon and just and then i rolled it and kind of did like a roulade with it and they threw it in the traeger and left it they're like what i said i'm just gonna leave it till it hits 150 you know and I pulled it out and they were like, we got to go shoot a turkey. Like we had like their whole entire mindset changed. It was like turkey hunting's fun. And it was like, yeah. like they were like, we need to go home. We need to make this meal for our wives. We need to recreate this. We need to have our kids excited because of a single bite of food. Yeah. You know, and I think that for me, why I take pictures of food and post it. Like yesterday I did three different enchiladas. I had 250 direct messages asking for recipes for pheasant enchiladas Hey, I got a, I got a freezer full of quail and I, I'm sick of grilling quail. I'm sick of pheasant nuggets. Like people are sick of just the basics. Enchiladas are not hard. I literally just boiled. Right. I boiled like a whole, you know, I think I had 13 quail, threw them in a, in a pot, you know, put a cup, like some seasoning, onions, garlic, carrot. And I just boiled them until they fell apart. And I shredded the meat. Like it's simple, stupid stuff that yeah. just elevates your food. And again, for me, I don't eat domestic meat. And so, you know, it's, it is that gateway. And I think that's huge. And that's why I want to talk to you. Cause I think you and I are on the same page and you're just a guy that, that people can relate to because you're not this superstar on TV. Who's like, look at me, I'm, I'm fit and I'm pulling a bow back at 190 pounds. You know, you're out there just pursuing your, your food and it's a real story and it's real people. And so I think that's it's kind of cool. It. Yeah. So where can people find you? Where can they follow you on Facebook? And I think, You've got a couple different pages if you want them to follow, especially that the Gobblezilla type stuff. And Yeah, so uh, the Gobblezilla is kind of my new social media thing. I'm just teaching people about turkeys and turkey hunting. Um, been kind of busy with work right now, so I haven't stayed up to date. Of course, turkey season is upon us, so between work and turkey season. But Gobblezilla is on Facebook and Instagram. You can find me there. Um, and then I have Primeval Pursuits, which is on Instagram and Facebook as well. Uh, I don't maintain that one as much, but I've got some great recipes on the website there. Um, so yeah, you can find me there. Hit yeah. me up if you, you know, you have any questions about turkey hunting. I'm always happy to teach people. So yeah. TJ is one of those guys too, like me, where we'll always respond. 
Um, we're going to, we're active on it and we're going to answer it personally. And we're going to kind of cater that to your need. If you have a, if you have a question, Hey, I hunt, you know, in the mountains and I cannot find him. He's going to be, he's a great resource to sit there and tell you. And for him and I, I would have literally got out of the car and like started hiking, you know, but for TJ, it's like taking the dirt roads every 400 yards, letting out a call and listening. If we hear a bird park the car and then we pursue. Um, so you're not just wasting your whole day and, and it, it worked. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we killed birds when we hunt together. So anyway, I want to thank you again for coming on dude. And thank you for, um, just being a part of this new podcast and kind of telling your story. And again, I'll have links to where you can find all TJ stuff down below. You got anything else before we get out of here, bud? No, I appreciate you, you know, inviting me on to talk and I'm definitely looking forward to seeing your other future podcasts. Yeah. I've so. got, I've got a lot loaded up and the goal is to kind of start pumping these out with just real stories of real people. So, all right, again, look for TJ on social media, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, I think he has his only fans. It's like tjsexy.com or something <laughs> like that. You can go pay, you can pay to be a patron and, uh, he'll, he'll just strut around with like Turkey fans in front of his private parts. Um, you, you don't want to see that. it, but you, you want to see, you do want to see like, it, yeah. like it's you worth really the $10 do. to see him, but you'll okay. never want to see it again, but you're going to tell your friends and they're going to go pay. It's, I mean, he's making millions of dollars just strutting around turkey fans. So yeah. you want to see that, make sure you go check that out. I wish it was real. He's probably going to go make it now because now he's like, hmm, maybe there's some money in this. But There might be. Until next time, guys, we'll talk to you later. Have a good one.